Thanks for joining me, Pete Holtzman, for the Credentials Only Podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is Michael Fjord, an event producer whose Fjord Productions company just put on their seventh college football playoff, and this weekend will produce the Lombardi Trophy presentation at the Super Bowl for the 16th time. Michael's introduction into production of sporting events came through working on Super Bowl halftime shows during his time with Radio City Music Hall. In his career, he's been a big part of bringing entertainment and sports closer together. You know, the lines are almost blurred other than you do ultimately at the end of the day have the athletes playing on the playing field, whatever that be, ice, basketball court, tennis court, football field. And then you're integrating these other elements. But I think they're critical. I think that ultimately fans are looking for and even this is an outdated term at this point, but that 360 experience. Throughout his career, Michael has worked hard to discover new talent to invite to perform at his events. You know, anybody can book the big names or the people that are better known, but when you get it right and introduce some some new names, that's always a great feeling. Any live production involves a lot of moving parts and putting on entertainment elements at sporting events is certainly no exception. In some ways, our role is to be the glue that as a producer, you know, somebody says, what do you do? Um, Sometimes it's traffic cop, but ultimately sort of the glue that holds it all together. Unlike many other facets of event presentation, you do not get to practice with the participants for a trophy presentation. So when we rehearse on Friday for Sunday's game, it's going to be exactly the way things are on game day except for we won't have 100 football players, we won't have about 500 security, we won't have hundreds of media, we won't have anybody in the stands. But other than that, it's exactly (laughs) like game day. Make sure to check out the show notes on credentialsonly.com for more information on many of the topics from our conversation, including links to videos of the Super Bowl halftime shows that we discussed. While you're there, please sign up for our mailing list to get notified whenever we have a new episode. And as we're getting started, please take a moment to leave a rating or review wherever you are listening. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Michael Fjord of Fjord Productions. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. I actually want to start by going way back in time. And I want to go to 1995. And I want to Act like you're in that room pitching the Super Bowl 30 halftime show. Sun Devil Stadium, 1996, January 1996 is the Super Bowl. Take me through that pitch process for that particular halftime show. Oh, boy. You know, I'll actually go back just one step further, which was so Super Bowl... 27 was in 93 so it was 1992 and Super Bowl 26 Fox counter-programmed in living color against the Super Bowl before they were ever an NFL partner and against the halftime show and up until that point it had been marching bands and some celebrities but a lot of cheerleaders and pom-poms and the NFL wanted to do something different and I was at Radio City at the time And we ended up going to Michael Jackson and getting Michael Jackson to do the Super Bowl 27 halftime show at the Rose Bowl in January of 93, 
which really then changed the face of halftime shows. And at the time, the NFL used to rotate around the halftime show. And so it would be Disney one year or another producer and Radio City now was in the mix. And so 1996 was the next one we got. And so it was, how do you top yourself? Uh, how do you, now you've done Michael Jackson, there've been a couple of other shows, what do you do next? And it really, this idea floated around of, could we ever land a helicopter in Sun Devil Stadium? And we also landed on Diana Ross, um, you know, a lot of Motown halftime shows over the years. We were able to convince Diana to do the halftime show. And then we pursued, you know, going through the music, which is always a challenge. Every artist always wants to do their newest thing, which was the same thing with Michael, same thing with other artists over the years. And of course, the fans want what's familiar and what they know. So... You know, looking back now, not quite sure how we put all of it together, but the idea became, you know, land a helicopter and then have Diana Ross leave the stadium sitting on the edge of the helicopter. And at the time, her new song really, which was mostly coincidental, was Take Me Higher. So what better way to leave the stadium? And so, you know, the initial pitch of the concept wasn't as much because the way a lot of events go and the way we work on a lot of projects is you decide to partner with somebody and then you figure out what the show is along the way. The, the hardest part of this was one, getting Diana Ross to agree to sit on the edge of a helicopter. And she actually, really pretty much didn't have to sell her that hard to do it. And we went out to, we took her out to um, McDonnell Douglas and she went on a test ride with the helicopter and saw what it was gonna all be like. Um, and she was a trooper. But then the biggest thing was at rehearsal, we had to have the NFL, the state of Arizona, um, the university, um, ASU, everybody had to sign off on actually doing this. So from, it was a question of what type of helicopter, it had to be dual engine, dual blade. Um, it, you know, so there were multiple points of, there wasn't a single point of failure that could make the helicopter come down. There were also two pilots, each one armed, in case the other one tried to take the thing down. So a rehearsal, <clears throat> literally there were 50 people, including Neil Austrian, who at the time was the president of the NFL, the governor of Arizona, because we were on Arizona property, lawyers and risk managers up the wazoo. And they were like, okay, Jim Steig, who was the head of events at the NFL time was, okay, Michael, tell them all what we're doing here and why we should allow you to do this. And so had it went through the whole thing. We had all these rules of if there was a piece of debris on the field, the helicopter couldn't land. For some reason, prior to having the helicopter land, we did a balloon release 
back when it was still not politically incorrect to do balloon releases. Of course, we're sending all these things up in the air before we're trying to bring this thing down to the ground. And one of my memories of game day is running down the sideline, trying to grab a balloon so that it wasn't in the air as the helicopter was coming down. Um, so back at rehearsal, the NFL had said, literally, I had to put like a solo plastic cup on the first row of the stands. And if the helicopter blew the cup over, they were going to say that the wind was too strong from the helicopter for safety. To this day, some people think I crazy glued the cup, but I didn't. <laughs> the cup did not blow over. And they let us land the helicopter. And of course, we would never be able to do something like that today. I will put in the show notes for this episode uh, a video clip of Diana Ross leaving Sun Devil Stadium in this helicopter. I'll also link to this article, which, according to this article, they, on the 20th anniversary of this, talked to the pilots. They oh, really? said that they almost had to abort. And I don't know if you ever heard about this or were, were blissfully able to be ignorant of this in the final seconds, but they said they were seconds away from not being able to pull off the landing. Were you aware of this at the time? Probably because of the people needing to get off the field. Um, like we also had a choir of 800 people. I mean, think about <laughs> everything you could possibly do to make it harder to land a helicopter. And we had a cast of like several thousand, I think. And it was an 800 member gospel choir. And we had this huge stage that we reconfigured during the course of the show and took out parts of it so that eventually the helicopter had basically a landing pad. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I do recall knowing after that, that they came very close to having to abort because of debris or people that they were, you know, it was, it was close. And, and there's so many things that, I mean, you said you won't ever do this again. And there are so many variables. One of the things that they talked about in that article was actually, you know, when you rehearsed it, it was an empty stadium. Now there are 76,000 people. The body heat changed the temperature where they couldn't necessarily get the necessary, uh, now I'm talking technical, so I'll just stop and point people to the article. But they said the body heat from all the spectators was an issue for them as well. So uh, amazing that you guys did that, never to be repeated for sure. Um, had to feel great to have pulled it off. Yeah, that was that, you know, you never want your, uh, you know, best note, you know, to be behind you um, in any way. But when I look back at, you know, all the events that I've produced over the years, that's pretty spectacular, you know. So you mentioned doing a number of the halftime shows, which ones have you done in, in the years and who were the performers? So um, <laughs> one of the things is that I tend to remember, I can tell you the years and then obviously figure out the games. Um, a lot of the time I don't, I can't tell you who the teams were, um, <laughs> but I can tell you the halftime shows were. So my very first halftime show, um, and I, I don't count that in the ones I produced, was Super Bowl 22 in 1988 in San Diego. 
And um, it was actually, I do know that that was actually the Denver Broncos and the now Washington Football Club. Um, I do remember that one. And that was back in the day of throwing the kitchen sink halftime shows. And I was working, I actually was freelancing for Radio City um, and worked as a talent coordinator. So it's very much the, you know, starting in the mailroom kind of thing of events. Um, and so I was responsible for Chubby Checker, um, a guy named Matt Plendel, who was the world hula hoop champion at the time and um, 44 Radio City Rockettes that it was 1988. So 44 times two legs each gave us 88 legs. And then we also had the San Diego State University and USC marching bands um, so that we had this Super Bowl super band. Um, and uh, the guy who was the uh, executive producer was a guy named Barnett Lipton who'd worked on the Olympics in LA four years earlier and brought a lot of that uh, style and feeling to the show and learned, and I learned, you know, an incredible amount. And um, the associate producer was a guy named Frank Sapovitz who would then go on to the NHL and then um, the NFL. And so our career paths kept uh, crossing each other over the years. And he's the one who brought me in to start producing the Lombardi Trophy ceremonies when he came to the NFL. Um, so other halftime shows are then Michael Jackson uh, in 1993, Super Bowl 27 at the Rose Bowl. And then Diana Ross at Super Bowl 30 at Sun Devil Stadium. And then Super Bowl 31 in New Orleans, Radio City just booked the talent for that show. Um, we didn't produce that one. And then, uh, which was ZZ Top and the Blues Brothers. And then uh, Super Bowl 32, we were in San Diego with the Motown 40th halftime show. And again, uh, we started getting, we had gone, we had some that were solo artists and then others that became much more uh, amalgamation of artists. And so uh, had a cross section and one of the groups that we had perform at our tent party before and after the game was these young kids named 98 Degrees, who then went on to fame. They kept trying to get me to put them in the halftime show itself. And I'm like, we can't add these guys. We don't have any more room here. And then I went on to work with them a number of times over the years. They would perform at Arthur Ashe Kids Day. So, you know, part of it for me is about forming these lifelong, career-long relationships with people across the industry, from clients to artists to managers, agents, and then you know a wide cross-section of colleagues from every phase of production. But there are people who I worked with on, certainly going back to Michael Jackson, that still work on the Super Bowl, and it's our kind of annual ritual you know, that we all meet and see each other, um, you know, in many ways, the same way the U.S. Open is and other events. 
And of course, the hardest part this year with COVID has been, and in particular at college football, um, I really had to say to everybody, I know one of the best parts of working on these events is the camaraderie, the coming together with colleagues, friends, clients, and the hanging out and getting to have a meal together or a drink together. And for all of our health and safety, there's none of that this year. There just can be no group meals. There can be no going into the bar. And, you know, that's the way it's got to be. Um, anyway, switching back then, Super Bowl 33 was my last halftime show. We were in uh, Miami and uh, it was Gloria Stefan, uh, Stevie Wonder and Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. And, uh, and that was another eclectic mix. You know, it was always like, oh, we need one more thing. Uh, so, uh, that was 1999. And you, you mentioned doing the Lombardi trophy presentation as well, which is its own production. What all goes into that for a, a lay viewer, the hundred million, hundred million people sitting at home who go to commercial break and then see the champion up there with someone from the TV network and the trophy a lot goes into making that happen. Probably one of the single biggest things I would say every year at rehearsal or at the production meeting before the rehearsal is, okay, so when we rehearse on Friday for Sunday's game, it's going to be exactly the way things are on game day, except for we won't have 100 football players. We won't have about 500 security. We won't have hundreds of media. We won't have anybody in the stands. But other than that, it's exactly <laughs> like game day. So the, the hardest part is the, the logistics of getting the stage out onto the field and set up in about 10 minutes. You know, for the halftime show, we used to have six and a half minutes to set up the stage and six and a half minutes to strike it. And then like a 12 minute show. And that has now expanded to longer setup times, longer shows, longer strike time. Um, but you get a clear field. Everybody leaves the field at halftime and then you get to roll in and set up. So it's really only a question of how much stuff you have that how long it takes. For post-game, the number one factor is, okay, where does the game end? If the game, you know, depending upon where the game ends, that impacts you setting it up. For the first number of years when we were brought in, and it was Frank Sapovitz at the time who brought us in to help reinvent the, half to, the trophy ceremony for Super Bowl Forty in Detroit. And so we created a new stage for it. We did it at the center of the field where it traditionally had been, but we also had worked very carefully to figure out how do you get this here? How do you create safe zones? Who's allowed where? And um, worked very closely with a guy named Jerry Anderson who had passed away two years ago now. Um, but who had been the um, event architect, basically, of the Super Bowl for 
25 plus years, worked on the Olympics and um, he was a designer architect and uh, part of what their role would be is figuring out what goes where. And we had worked as a group to create a plan of how to do this safely and securely. And we got to creating something called the Blooming Onion, which was that security would go to the center of the field and then they would push out like a Blooming Onion to create the space into which the stage would go. And then we'd have to have rope lines coming from the side, you know, the tunnel that this was coming out from and how it would get into, uh, you know, the center. And then we had a second ring so that we would be able to set up while uh, we were starting to allow people who needed, who were allowed to be in the inner circle. So it becomes this, you know, sort of juggling act of, if the, we now have moved the trophy ceremony to usually one end of the field. That has allowed us a much easier setup because you get a sort of a direct shot. You can create a shoot from the tunnel almost right into your setup area. And sometimes we'll rehearse the barricade setup. Sometimes we won't be able to. Last year in Miami um, for, for Super Bowl 54, and which was of course the 100th anniversary of the NFL, we were in an open air stadium uh, where you're subject to weather and we had real turf, which are the worst two things. It, it, those are the best two things when you want old school football. You know, the only thing better than that is, you know, as a Packers fan is snow, you 100%. know, playing outdoors in inclement weather, where, weather with real grass is the way football was meant to be played as opposed to inside in a covered dome with artificial turf. But of course the game has evolved and being able to protect from the elements is important. But so uh, in Miami, like we will have in Tampa, the weather plays a really big role. And with all the rain we were having last year, when it came time to rehearse the trophy ceremony and we had a whole new stage for the 100th anniversary, we only could bring out some of the pieces and not all the pieces um, so that we didn't, you never get a full rehearsal. So number one challenge of, of the trophy ceremony is you never get to rehearse it as it's actually going to happen. And then oftentimes you don't even get to rehearse as much as you even could potentially rehearse. We're also, while we're the, penultimate moment of the entire season. This is what everybody's been waiting for. This is what everybody's been playing for. When it comes to other elements, post-game isn't as sexy as halftime show or national anthem or some of those other elements. And so everybody's vying for time. And so each year we're chipping away a little bit and trying to do it a little faster with a little less rehearsal time. And then it's, you know, trying to make it interesting and different. And how do you make it about the players, uh, which is a really important piece of it. Um, and how do you, when you have a stage that can only hold so many people who's on the stage. And last year we made it so that the entire team could be up on the stage, which was the first time we've ever had that kind of setup. This year, obviously with COVID precludes doing something 
uh, like that. Uh, so the stage will have social distancing built into who can be up there and how far apart they have to be and everybody has to wear a mask and that kind of thing. So you mentioned an interesting phrase that I want to hear a little bit more about where the game ends. So I'm imagining when the stage is in the middle of the field, you've got the natural reaction of the teams is to walk across to shake hands with their coach. But if that's also where they just took the knee, you know, on the 45 yard line to end the game, that's a problem for your crew to get out there or now. Yes. It's great that you've got a beeline from the tunnel right out to that end zone. But if the game ends dramatically in that end zone, you've got that entire roster of 75 people running down to celebrate in that end zone. You guys have to go in and say, um, can you move your celebration out to the 20, please? I mean, is that literally what you're talking about when you say where the game ends? Yeah. So, you know, we'll look at all our plans and as we talk about it, um, you know, we'll say, okay, if, you know, depending upon whether it's, we're doing the ceremony towards the AFC end zone or the NFC end zone. We're like, okay, let the game end at the other end zone, you know, as far away from us as possible. And, and when we talk to the broadcast partners each year, and granted it's the same partners and the same conversations, but always reminding everybody that there are certain things that impact our setup time. And one of them is definitely where the game ends. So what we've slowly created over the years and, and the system has evolved um, to a very sophisticated level, including credentialing and dozens and dozens of people have been a part of this from operational people to security people is we've now created this two minute celebration period for the team where the, it used to be that all the media could run out on the field at the end of the game as they still do at college football, just not, this year, we didn't have them all. But the 500 credential media college football can go on the field at the end of the game. NFL has created this two minute period where the team gets to celebrate with very limited number of photographers, <clears throat> only the host broadcast crew out on the field. And part of that also allows us to start our setup and that the team will tend to gravitate even when it does end at one end of the field because there will have been other players elsewhere or players by the bench. They do tend to work their way to each other a bit. We don't typically get everybody just taking a knee right at the end zone. But we then have these security groups that we have different things. So one of the main pieces is the rope line push. So with probably four or five minutes left on the clock, in a typical year, we'll have several hundred security start to move out onto the field that have come from other places throughout the event over the course of the day and ring the perimeter wall and then ring the sideline. And then we get a group behind the end zone that are all lined up of about 50 people or so with two ropes and when the game is officially over, the rope pushes forward. And literally, we use that sort of force, gentle force, to move the team down the field. Uh, we also have um, a guy named Jim Mercurio, who's the general manager of um, the 49ers um, in Levi Stadium. 
and has worked, I've worked with them on, you know, literally almost every Super Bowl I've worked on. And he's always been responsible for celebrity security, he comes from a security background and has always helped with the celebrity security and the post-game security. And he's got a group of people who literally get around the team and move them away from where we need to set up. Um, and, uh, and it's a fascinating process that there are all these people pieces that go into play. Um, and then we get into this setup period where the stages start to come out and we start to set up and being in the, towards the end of the field allows us to have taken that area. It was much harder to take and control the center of the field, even going back to that blooming onion concept. And now, you know, it's evolved over the years. We used to have a carpet and do a trophy walk with an MVP and did that for a number of years. And then as we switched things up for the hundredth, gave it a whole new look. Um, but it used to be, okay, how do we get the players to line up on the carpet and keep the carpet clear at the same time for the trophy bear to walk through? And there was a period of time where I used to try and run the post-game show from being on the field. I always liked being on the field instead of up in the booth. But we got to a point where I realized I would really have a much better vantage point watching from up top and being able to talk to everybody else on the field than being in and amongst it. But there used to be a time where I'd be trying to get players to line up on the carpet and to clear the carpet. And I remember one time like being on the carpet with a megaphone, you know, yelling up at these 300 pound, six foot five guys with their cleats on. And one of the guys saying, I'll help you. And he took the megaphone from me and he's like, okay, everybody line up on the carpet and spread out. Um, so there are a lot of great uh, interesting uh, memories uh, that are that are part of these. So for the Super Bowl, you're involved with that trophy presentation. Have done the halftime show, college football playoff. It's still a football game, but you're <clears throat> overseeing more of that entire event from the players taking the field all the way through. How is it different when you're kind of over the whole game? It's great. You know, in, in some ways, I've been a part of the Super Bowl because we all sit in many of the same meetings over the years. You know, I've, I've felt a part of the process and having produced various elements of it. So each year feel pretty connected. But with college football, what's really cool and special about the relationship is we've been with them since college football playoff was created. And since the first game in 2015, what's great is that they entrusted us to build their entire pageantry and signature looks and traditions. And part of what we kept uh, and it was important to the commissioners and all of the schools that are part of it was keeping the marching band tradition at halftime. And while part way along the way, uh, we worked with CFP and with ESPN to integrate offsite halftime elements, the in-stadium show continued to remain 
the bands. So in addition to managing the bands, the other entertainment component though, unlike the Super Bowl or different from the Super Bowl is the team introductions and other pageantry carries far more, um, not importance, but it is, is different from uh, what happens uh, with, this, with the Super Bowl per se. So we were able to create a look for the team introductions that each year we kind of update and revamp a little bit um, where we created these signature arches for CFP and then integrating pyro and other special effects. And then confetti is always a part of the trophy ceremony at the Super Bowl. It's a part of the trophy ceremony at college football. Um, over the years with both of them, we've gone to having winning team colors. So just to make things a little more challenging, they have to make sure that the right box goes into the blower. And when you have 16 people standing around the perimeter of the field with 16 blowers and I think we had two years in a row with CFP that we went to overtime, I think. Um, you're waiting like till the very split second. Like when you, like we knew with Ohio State and Alabama, uh, once we got to halftime, we were pretty sure who was gonna win the game. And of course with, you know, several minutes to go on the clock, we were pretty sure that, uh, we knew which confetti to pick. We also did have the advantage that while there were slight variations in the mixes in the box, if we went with the wrong confetti with Alabama and Ohio State, nobody probably would have known. Um, right. Different have, if you have Michigan out there in, in maize and blue. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, so, uh, you know, and occasionally we've been able to save money, you know, when the Giants and Patriots have been in the same Super Bowl. But, um, and then pyro, you know, when we're, whether we're outdoors or whether we can do indoor pyros. So we look to make it as spectacular as possible. Also, college football has, you know, does not have Super Bowl sized budgets. And so we do it with, what are, you know, healthy budgets, but not extravagant. So we, part of the sort of uh, ingenuity that's involved in producing this stuff for college football is doing it very cost efficiently um, and still making it look spectacular. And then of course, there's the national anthem, which uh, this year we did with a pre-recorded performance by Alabama. Uh, again, COVID impacted so many things, but typically, you know, last year we had Lauren Daigle, who was just crossing over from being a Christian contemporary artist to a more mainstream crossover artist and got her as she was sort of catapulting on her career. So, and it was her home state and we happened to have LSU in the game. So it's always great when these things all uh, come together in such a way. Um, we had Tim McGraw performing at the tailgate for that game, which is another part of what we do. So we book all the talent for the entire weekend, which 
over the years has included, there's a private party that they do for ESPN and CFP. And, um, and then there's uh, the tailgate on game day. And then there's AT&T Playoff Playlist Live, which is typically now a free outdoor concert series. Um, and like when we were in Atlanta in 2018, we had Lizzo as one of our acts when she was just breaking out. Like she hadn't become Lizzo that everybody knew who she was. So we also, you know, similar to what we've done over the years with Arthur Ashe Kids Day, uh, we love breaking out new artists and having, you know, anybody can book the big names or the people that are better known. Uh, but when you get it right and introduce some, some new names, that's always a great feeling. So whether it's the Super Bowl or the college football playoff or really any event you're doing, it, it, kind of going back to the start of our conversation and, and making that pitch in the room, there have to be a number of stakeholders. I can probably think of a, at least a half dozen off the top of my head. How many different people are involved in this conversation of kind of giving you the parameters in which you get to operate? One of the things that I think makes us very good at what we do is that we are always thinking about all the various constituencies involved. And, you know, when we're working on college football playoff and booking talent, it's a question of what all the various people within college football playoff think and different people like different artists. Then you have ESPN, who's our partner in the broadcast and also with all the sponsors. And they have opinions and they put together their toolkit of music and they want to integrate that. And then there's AT&T, um, who's the title sponsor of the concert series. And then you have Capital One, who's the sponsor of Tailgate. And each time there's Allstate, who's the party at the playoff. So in each instance, it's wanting to have talent that appeals to all those folks. You know, at the NFL, there are many different groups and it's broadened, you know, and they have now, and particularly I think as things have evolved over the last um, year or two with a lot of social justice issues and things like that, they have a community relations department, they have their social media group, they have their traditional PR group, they have football ops, they have media relations, um, they have the event operations side. They have the security group. Uh, probably the, the Super Bowl, because of the nature of the trophy ceremony, is the place where we work with the broadest group of people um, and just by virtue of the size of the NFL and the Super Bowl. Uh, we do the same thing with college football on a smaller scale, um, and part of it is about what's great is we've also built up a level of trust. You know, so this was our seventh consecutive uh, college football playoff national championship game. Um, I forget what number this was my 
20th or something U.S. Open. Uh, I've done 25 Super Bowls. And while some of the people on the client side have changed with each of the organizations, um, one thing that's great is that we're still there. And that's a credit to all the people on our team. Um, and the other is, I think, our ability to you know, understand and listen to the client and to have built up this level of trust where to some degree, there are certain elements where clients will let us do what we need to do. And then there are other parts of it where we need to work through it together. Um, occasionally I can be a little stubborn and think that my way might be the better way, but Fortunately, there are enough people around uh, that help me listen. Are you often just talking directly to the client or are they typically bringing you into the conversation early with the sponsor, with the broadcast partner? It, with each client, it varies. Um, and, so, and a lot of times the, the conversations are um, kind of uh, separated, you know, so it's not necessarily always big groups. The NFL does have certain big meetings. College football has certain big meetings. Um, the U.S. Open a little bit less so in terms of it's more conversations with individual groups uh, within the organization. But in most instances, we're brought in pretty early and we can be our most effective. I mean, in each of these relationships, while we're working on either one-off single day events or a, a weekend long of events or a two week long event. Um, we're really working on it year round. Um, you know, typically at this point, we'd be having preliminary conversations about the US Open. I think everybody's sort of in a little bit of a holding pattern uh, to, you know, see what the world is going to look like, or do we think it's going to look like come August? Um, and so we're not jumping in to plan certain things yet, because it would just be premature at this point. Uh, college football will typically start talking about 2022 in Indianapolis. I think our first trip is going to be in April this year. I think one of the changes we're going to see as a result of COVID is people are going to say, maybe we don't need as many site surveys as we once did, or how do we can be more effective, or we can be on site a shorter time as we've all learned to do more um, from home. But there's also a certain amount that you can't do remotely. And there's also a certain level of productivity, I think, that comes from being in the same place, um, even if albeit masked um, and socially distant. And so you've talked a little bit about all the different entities within the NFL, for example, that you have to touch. And I think as you get from, okay, here's the concept that we're going for to actually implementing it, that net goes even broader in terms of the people you need to work with. And I'm just, again, from the outside perspective, I'm thinking, well, if you're going to set off fireworks, you might need to have to, you know, talk to the FAA because there could be an airport nearby and right. all these, the, the next level, as you get into the operational pieces, it, it has to just be a, a big logistics project. Is that a pretty concise way of, of saying what you do? Yeah. 
our role is to be the glue that as a producer, you know, somebody says, what do you do? Um, sometimes it's traffic cop, um, but ultimately sort of the glue that holds it all together. You know, I also think the best events and the most successful ones are where you're not pointing at any one person and saying, oh my God, Michael did the most amazing job or Todd did the most amazing job, but that it was this entire team effort and that you almost, from the creative process side, I always love when we have the finished product and you never quite know where it originated, just the same way when you were asking about the Diana Ross halftime show and the original pitch. It's like something that evolved over time and each of the team members started to contribute to it along the way. Um, and so I think with many of the events we do with um, the US Open and the folks at Overland Entertainment that we work with or, and when we work with the SPN and when we work with the USTA, when we work with college football and you get different people with different ideas, it's really about being a good listener. But when, you, when we get to producing the end product and probably the trophy ceremonies for college football and for Super Bowl are the, the biggest involving the greatest number of people, it, it, it's sometimes what I like to call organized chaos. <laughs> because again, we don't get to rehearse in real time. You know, you think about Broadway shows or, you know, movies or anything, any kind of theatrical production of any kind, concerts, artists go, you know, often practice for a week before starting their tour weeks. And so we get almost, we're putting on a show with almost no rehearsal time. Um, you know, the, a halftime show gets three, four, five nights on the field or however many, you know, times to rehearse. But you have almost no rehearsal time, almost no real re real time rehearsal time to interesting tidbits about um, when we did uh, college football in uh, 2019 in Santa Clara at Levi Stadium. We got rained out on Sunday, the day before the game, which was our only rehearsal day. And so we had to get our anthem singer, who was Andy Grammer, out on the field just to do a sound check at some point that day as they're trying to get the field dry, finished painting, get everything in order because nobody could do anything the day before. So, and the field is now really wet and they've got blowers going. And then we tried to <clears throat> find a small window where we could at least set our team entrance look and take it away. We didn't get a full rehearsal, but we had to know where we were going to. But the post game, we never rehearsed the trophy ceremony and getting the stage out onto the field, but we have such an amazing crew of people that do it every year with us and know how to manage other people. And we'd met so many times and talked it through and the stadium was great. And, um, we pulled it off and of course, pulling it off with no rehearsal then leads people to say, well, what <laughs> rehearsal. And then you mentioned the FAA. So 
we were in an outdoor stadium doing aerial fire. We did fireworks for the team entrances and then we had fireworks for the end of the game and had a big fireworks display plan and we're counting down to the official game over and I get a call on the radio that the FAA has us in a holding pattern because we're so close to the San Jose airport and I'm dropping F-bombs on the um, like nobody's business and I'm up in CFP control and there was a new guy who was sort of operating CFP control who I think is jaw drop as I'm like, I don't give a, you know, our fireworks have to go off, move the planes. And we ended up being able to shoot the pyro um, as the uh, school band was actually playing their um, uh, alma mater. And so um, it sort of worked out perfectly like that they finished the alma mater and the, and the pyro went off. Um, so everything doesn't go exactly as planned. And then one of my life phrases uh, that I try to adhere to, I don't always listen to myself as well as I should, is uh, from, from Billie Jean King and the notion that champions adapt. And uh, I try to uh, maintain that mantra at least to inspire others <laughs> and then occasionally listen to it myself. You mentioned the crew and uh, you referenced earlier, you have 16 people there just to shoot off the confetti cannons. You've got people setting off that pyro. You're coordinating with the security team. There's a lot happening in this controlled chaos. How big is this team that's kind of your tentacles out there making sure that everybody's in the right place doing the right thing? It's a group that builds, you know, there's, there's a core group of people that work on most of the events and that's a small handful of people. And then we really build a team and a lot of times with many of the same people each year. So, you know, at the college football championship, when we're fully staffed and doing all of our events, with all of our people and all of our crew, we could probably be at about 50 people or so um, that are just, you know, part of the fewer productions team that, that we've brought in. Um, Super Bowl, uh, we do with a little bit of a smaller crew actually, because we rely on so, so much from so many others. Um, but we have probably typically a core group of, well, when you bring in the confetti guys, we're probably 35 or so. And then, and it can vary a little bit every year. And if there's pyro or not pyro and, um, and then the U S open is where we probably have the biggest team of probably about a hundred people working under the entire event operation um, for all the entertainment components at the Open. That's a perfect segue to talk about the U.S. Open. You've mentioned it a few times, but you've also referenced another facet of that event. What is Arthur Ashe Kids Day? So Arthur Ashe Kids Day began in 1996 at the point that the USTA had um, approved and 
was preparing to build Arthur Ashe Stadium that was going to open in 1997. I didn't work on that first one, which was in Louis Armstrong Stadium. Uh, but from 1997 on, have um, uh, for the first several years uh, either produced or booked the talent. And then uh, since 2001, have produced the entire event. Um, 2020 was to have been the 25th annual Arthur Ashe Kids Day that we weren't able to do uh, due to COVID, even though we were able to have an open, it was without fans. Um, 2021 uh, would be the 25th anniversary of the launch of the event. And um, again, we'll have to see what the year brings and whether we're able to do a live event or some type of video tribute or whether it gets postponed a year to really do it properly. Um, uh, but it began, of course, because of Arthur Ashe and his legacy of not only as a tennis player, but as a humanitarian. And of course, with the stadium having been named for him, uh, for him to be the first and still only black man to win the U.S. Open, uh, for his positions on civil rights, human rights, all those things, and his um, values and his uh, feeling of importance of young people and creating pathways for them, uh, knowing what uh, he, what his life was like and how he learned about tennis and how he grew up, he had created um, what's now still exists, the NJTL, which was a way to um, give uh, inner city or underprivileged kids um, across the country opportunities in both tennis and education that they never would have had. Over the years, the event has evolved, morphed, changed, adapted um, in terms of what, both what it is and what, what the messages are in terms of like specifically. So, so each year, one of the main objectives is to promote the USTA's youth initiatives, which is currently the Net Generation Program. Over the years, it's had many different names and many different faces of get in the game and, um, or just as simple as youth tennis or 10 and under tennis, or I think quick time tennis. Um, and so, uh, no matter what it is, at the core of everything we've done has tried to make the event about young people for young people and to keep Arthur's memory and what he stood for alive. And we've done it with celebrity musical entertainers. We've done it with celebrity uh, athletes. We've done it with you know celebrity actors and tried to be a launching ground for young people 
that you know we're up and coming uh you know we have artists like the jonas brothers who in 2005 performed on our festival stage on the grounds that's the untelevised you know just you pass by and see a performance and it was before they'd signed to Hollywood Records and before they'd become the Jonas Brothers. They didn't even have a single out yet. And they came back in 2007 as their career was taking off. And then they came back in 2010 at like the height of their career. And um, with them, we'd had Demi Lovato. And then, you know, we've had, they've come back Nick has come back and performed uh, God Bless America and Joe's come almost every year. And between Nick, Joe and Kevin, they come back as fans. Um, so it's really, there's a great legacy there. So it, it's hard to sum up Arthur Ashe Kids Day in a word or a phrase or a sentence, but you know, it's it's grown over 25 years into the single biggest grassroots event for families um, and the tennis community. Um, you know, for years we would sell out uh, the entire stadium. Uh, you know, we've had the grounds packed to capacity with 30,000 plus people. And it's really about connecting young people to tennis and having them, you know, sometimes it's the first time a kid holds a racket is when they come to Arthur Ashe Kids Day. But it's also about the values of Arthur, what Arthur stood for. You know, it's been very important over the years that the mix of artists have been Black, Hispanic, Asian, transgender, gay, or LGBT, um, uh, that they've been younger skewing artists, they've been some older skewing artists. Um, that's probably the place where we've always had, you talk about the events and everybody having an opinion. Um, and, you know, if you're gonna have one artist or two artists or even five artists, who are those artists? Who do they appeal to? Um, you know, and things have changed so much now, you know, we were doing Arthur Ashe Kids Day before there was social media. Uh, now it takes on, you know, a whole new uh, look, you know, I, I still joke about the fact of, you know, having had a MySpace page for Arthur Ashe Kids Day, we thought we were so cool. Um, so, in, when you boil it all down, you know, Arthur Ashe Kids Day is about promoting tennis. It's about keeping Arthur's legacy alive. It's about having fun. And at the end of the day, it's also about showing that tennis is hip and cool. Um, of course, when you have to say you're hip and cool, it doesn't necessarily make you hip and cool. Um, but I think we've done a pretty good job. And, and it, part of it is about it constantly uh, evolving and, and reevaluating what the event is and how to communicate with kids. It's a little bit different from some of the events you do as well, because you actually have the athletes participating. They are out there and it's not just something going on around the game. They're actually on the court participating in the programming for Arthur Ashe Kids Day. Does, how does that impact what you have to do? 
You're, you know, part of it is to think of how do how do you engage 25,000 people in a tennis stadium and hundreds of thousands of people watching on TV or online. And so you have to look at the things you're going to do from both of those perspectives. It's funny, one of the lessons I learned early on in producing halftime shows was how the show comes off in stadium for the 75,000 fans or however many maybe in the football stadium or the 100 million watching, you know, at home, it has to be equally compelling. Um, a lot of times shows will skew more heavily towards the 100 million and what they're seeing, but you have to give the live audience as great a show. And that's always a challenge, particularly when you're doing something with athletes like tennis. You know, we've done things where we've had two great name tennis players, you know, rallying or playing each other. And it's not necessarily that compelling for a kid show in a stadium with 25,000 people. You know, we've, we've looked at, you know, is there, what's the, you know, Nickelodeon slime version of tennis? And we've never got to sliming because people feel like if we did slime on the court, we might somehow impact play. So, you know, and it's interesting, you think about the challenges with each thing the play, no matter the sport, the playing surface is, you know, sacrosanct. And so, you know, <clears throat> there have been times where people have come around after we've done things on court at the US Open or elsewhere and look to see, you know, did we make a dent in the court somewhere or did what we put on the court? Um, uh, I remember one time we had uh, flamethrowers and I thought Wayne McEwen's head was going to explode it was for a, like a Davis Cup or, or Fed Cup. And, you know, they're out on court throwing the flames. Um, but uh, the with the athletes, it's trying to find something that they want to do because they don't want to do anything that's going to risk injury. So, you know, fastest serve or something that could in any way injure them before the big event. Um, and we found one of the most popular things has been doing a skills challenge where they're hitting targets and the audience can count along. And um, we've tried all kinds of things over the years. We tried a survivor tennis that was like with kids and the pros. And that's actually one of the things we always try to do is, is involve kids in what we're doing with the pros. And what's great is, with very few exceptions, all of the top star tennis stars always respond so well to working with kids. And of course, many of them now have kids on their own. You know, if you look back from a couple of years ago when we were launching that generation and we had Serena out there, and I think it was the 50th anniversary of the Open, so it would have been 2018, and we were paying tribute to the 50th anniversary of Arthur having went, won the Open. And I remember Serena being out there and like we were doing all these different activities. It was just like a circus across the court. 
and there were kids doing double dutch and you know showing that different skills help you with tennis and serena got right in there and was jump roping with the kids and then there was a kid in a wheelchair and that's always been important to us to engage both kids and professional athletes who maybe you know have different um challenges that they're they've overcome and she was with you know really talking to the kid in the wheelchair and you know over the years Novak um who probably you know is the the most comedic of 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 the top stars and um and a lot of them you know like Rafa has his foundation is about kids so a lot of the athletes naturally gravitate towards wanting to do the event because it's part of their giving back. But trying to figure out how to make it interesting. Um, one year when we had Will Ferrell, we had him dress like James Blake and play James Blake looking like James Blake, which is a little bit inside, um, but you know, for enough people that know tennis, and of course with Will Ferrell being Will Ferrell, um, it, it turned out to be a pretty funny moment. A lot of what you do is to amplify the event. I mean, the majority of people are probably tuning in for the game, but you're adding a lot to that event experience. To your point, whether they're in the venue or watching at home, where do you see that value of adding this entertainment layer, whether it's through a kid's day, whether it's through someone performing an anthem before the game or a halftime show, how important do you think it is to sports to have that entertainment infusion to their events? I think it's become an integral part that sports and entertainment are uh, in, indelibly interlinked uh, for, <laughs> for, for the, for time to come, uh, that, you know, if you look at any event between the music and we were part of first introducing music to tennis and playing music on changeovers when used to just be quiet, uh, video screens in tennis, um, you know, when Arthur Ashe Stadium was built, we had video screens for Arthur Ashe Kids Day and opening night, and then they went away. They weren't there for the tennis. And they came back a couple of years later permanently, um, or first temporarily and then permanently. So as various elements have become part of whether it's halftime shows, anthems, in between things, music, video, um, and all becoming more sophisticated and all becoming more intertwined with social media. And of course you look at how it took new forms uh, for the US Open and other sports in 2020 with virtual fans. And still you look at things going on now like the skating championships and um, continuing to find ways to integrate sport and entertainment and social and it's all you know the lines are almost blurred other than you do ultimately at the end of the day have the athletes playing on the playing field whatever that be as you know ice basketball court tennis court football field um and then you're integrating these other elements but i think they're critical i think that ultimately fans are looking for and 
even this is an outdated term at this point, but that 360 experience of, I don't think anybody, there are, there are very few purists, I would say, that want to go to a tennis match and not be entertained beyond just the tennis. And, and it's the whole experience. It's, it's the food, it's the atmosphere, it's the interaction, interactive components. Um, you know, the U.S. Open is, is an experience. The Super Bowl is an experience. The College Football National Championship game is an experience. And what we take pride in probably the most is elevating these experiences to become as memorable as possible. Um, that you'll often hear many producers talk about, you know, we're, we're in the business of creating memories. Uh, we're in the business of creating something that will last a lifetime uh, in terms of an experience, but sometimes it lasts just a few minutes and that's okay too. I'd be remiss if I didn't wrap up here by asking you a little bit about your path. And you've had your own production company now for a couple of decades. And you talked about being at Radio City Music Hall before that to get the entertainment piece going. But you started in the mayor's office in Binghamton, New York. How in the <laughs> world did you build this journey for yourself? <clears throat> so when I was applying to colleges, um, I was looking at being like an architect, a business major, journalism, theater. Um, and I kind of, and, and when I was in high school, I was editor of the newspaper and also in the theater club and business manager of the theater club. So there's kind of, the, and then when I went on to college, I went and auditioned for a bunch of shows and found out very quickly that I was not going to be a theater major or an actor um, and ended up working on the newspaper and then student government. And so it's kind of been this circuitous path, but it's also always involved some portion of business, some portion of creative um, and I like to say that I'm sort of equally left brain and right brain, that there are times I can find great comfort in burying myself in an Excel spreadsheet until all the numbers tie out and take great pride that every event we've ever produced has come in under budget um, and, and like working with the numbers. And then there's the creative side. And so when I was in college, I had met this woman uh, who was a city councilwoman at the time and this random thing where her husband had mentioned that she was going to be running for mayor and literally about a month later I'm on a Greyhound bus going back to Binghamton, New York in a snowstorm and this woman Juanita Crabb who was the city councilwoman at the time uh, was on the Greyhound bus across the aisle from me. And we ended up, and the bus ride that should have taken three hours took like four and a half hours because of the snow and ended up, this was January and she was gonna announce in February that she was running for mayor. So from the conversation on the Greyhound bus and just kind of casually having met her previously, 
she was like, why don't you work on the campaign? And this was like my senior year of college where I was, uh, I was the student on the board of trustees and had that job. And, you know, your final semester is actually usually not your hardest. Um, and I wasn't going for any kind of, uh, you know, mind blowing degree or uh, wasn't finishing any kind of major thesis or any kind. Um, and ended up working on her campaign and writing her campaign speech for her announcement and then producing her events and then she won and then I was working in city government and we were producing events. I mean, it was Binghamton, New York in the 80s and it was one of these upstate and northeast cities that had died on the vine that had become part of the Rust Belt and uh, they were just starting to come back uh, after you know years of decline and people having moved to the suburbs and all that. So what we were doing as part of the job of running a city uh, was putting on events, street fairs, parades, movies, you name it. Uh, we were trying to do it. And what I realized was I was producing. And when I got to the point that I was ready to move back to New York, um, in part because uh, my partner had given me an ultimatum because he was living in New York, that if I didn't come back to New York, it was over. Um, I ended up at Radio City on, in a freelance gig and I'd had all kinds of other things I was looking at, political writing, and one thing led to another and freelanced to Radio City and then started doing other events and then wound up back at Radio City full-time for a period of 10 years that became Radio City in Madison Square Garden. And then left and a number of people who'd all been clients, um, I ended up working on the US Open that year and then the Super Bowl. And then it's just kind of evolved over the years. I close every episode of Credentials Only with the set pieces, the same half dozen questions for everybody. To start, what are podcasts or newsletters you use to stay informed and keep learning? So I'm awful about this. <laughs> I actually do not listen to any podcasts and read almost no newsletters. Um, you know, I probably spend a portion of every day unsubscribing uh, to stuff that comes because I at one time or another showed uh, interest in it. Um, and I tend, I get my information from a bunch of other uh, sources, um, and one of my colleagues whom you know, Todd Noonan, who we've worked together now uh, for 18 years, I think, um, consumes more information than any other human being. And so I rely on him to say, oh, uh, I just heard this on a podcast or I just found this or take a look at this artist. Um, I mean, there are things that I look at um, like billboard charts or um, until now uh, they're no longer around. Radio Disney was one of the places where we would often look to in terms of aspiring talent. Um, Sports Business Journal is something that I do look at on a pretty regular basis. Front office, 
Um, so there are, uh, there are a few, I guess they are newsletters because they're, they come in email form or they're magazines that, you know, again, everything comes in every format. Um, uh, you know, I will, I will scroll through Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and see what's popping up. But of course, I'm only seeing what Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, Instagram think I should be seeing. Uh, so I have to. That, that actually segues into the next question. Are there any particular posts that you want to make sure you see the most valuable follows, the ones you don't want to be missing? You know, it begins with the clients. So I do track, you know, USTA, US Open, WTA, ATP, um, the NFL, CFP. Um, so those are, are ones that, that I track for, you know, work stuff. Um, and, and are a lot of musical artists, um, not that it's any particular one, but I follow a lot. One of my favorite things to do is to screenshot when I start following somebody early on and to see how many followers they have so that I can go back. I wish there was a way, maybe it does exist, where somebody actually tracks and you can see how many followers a particular person had at a particular time. Because I love seeing the evolution of, oh, here's somebody we just discovered and they have 10,000 followers and now they're now they've got a million next one what are a couple books you would recommend in when the the reading that I do I tend to want to be escapist I do love um uh autobiographies or biographies um but tend to go towards um uh sort of uh fiction and uh of the John Grisham, uh, but in particular, the, I'm waiting to read the newest David Baldacci. I think one of the moving things is, um, and now I'm trying to remember the correct name of the um, title, but The Day the World Came to Town, the 9-11 um, Gander, Newfoundland um, story that became Come From Away. What would you consider your cheat code or your best life hack? Um, I live by um, eight and a half by 11. Uh, le I, you call them legal pads, but they're not really legal pads because they're letter size legal pads. They have to be white. They have to be ruled. Um, I prefer better quality paper versus really cheap, really thin paper. And then I have a metal, you know, 12 inch ruler that I found in the desk that I started in when I started Radio City full time. And um, I've kept that ruler with me forever. And wherever I am at home, on site, often on a plane, I'm using the ruler and the white letter size pad and a big blue ballpoint pen to draw lines down the pad and make my lists and keeping the lists. And sometimes I joke that my lists have lists. Sometimes I'm on three <laughs> pads and one is the immediate to do pad. One is sort of like the running list. One is like the less important stuff. So lists, lists and lists. 
And then one of my things that I try to always say to everybody who's working on the team is that think about everything you can conceivably think about um, and do it now so that when the unexpected comes along, you're ready for it. Um, and conversely, I'm a great procrastinator, <laughs> but <laughs> we're in the moment of, you know, gearing up for the events and the lists of course are the thing that help us do that. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Growing up as a New Yorker, but not a huge sports fan. Um, but 1969 was, uh, of course, the Jets and the Mets. The, the Jets winning the Super Bowl, um, which if memory serves, hasn't happened since. <laughs> Um, and Joe Namath, who at one point had actually lived in our apartment building, like, you know, Broadway Joe in New York City as a kid um, was pretty cool. And then um, it, it happened that, and we weren't in like a super fancy building, but it had a number of athletes in and out of the building over the years. And there was a guy named Bill Mathis who played for the Jets, who was our next door neighbor. Um, and so like knowing him, and then at, there was a point where um, Roger Bear had been living in the building. And I, I don't know if it was the Times or Daily News, one of the local papers was wanting to photograph him. And I ended up getting photographed getting an autograph from Roger Bear and not being a crazy hockey fan, but still being a New Yorker. And actually one of my best friends in high school loved to play. He played ice hockey, but he would make all of us play street hockey. And it was like the worst thing that I ever had to do. I hated doing it, but, but um, meeting Roger Bear as a kid, um, and getting your picture in the paper with him um, was kind of a pretty cool thing. Do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? Gosh, I didn't think you'd ever ask. <laughs> um, so up until fairly recently, I've kept pretty much every credential and they've been in a variety of places when, you know, I've had like a corporate office or when I'd had an office in the city, which I since got rid of as part of COVID, um, there'd always be a portion of them hanging in the office, kind of the newest ones. Um, in, in their most recent location, they were hanging on like a hook that was on a lamp that allowed you to just kind of layer on credential after credential. Um, but they eventually all make their way to home and various bins. But I've been trying to go through part of the time that COVID had provided. I've been going through kind of a purging process. And somebody once said to me, and it's kind of fill in the blank, but once you realize there's not going to be a Michael Fuhr museum, <laughs> you can use that as a guide to what do you keep and what do you get rid of? Or if it's saleable, there are there are some you know some of those items. So I have gone through a wave of purging some credentials, 
And um, as I was doing it, I was dividing them up and throwing them into manila envelopes for US Open, Super Bowl, college football, other. Um, and there are still a lot more. Some of them are in Ziplocs. They're, they're in a bunch of, um, they're in a bunch of various places, but I definitely save them. And uh, trying to figure out a, um, a logical uh, process for deciding what to ultimately keep. Michael, thank you so much for the time. I really enjoyed the conversation. Good luck down in Tampa with the Super Bowl. Thank you. There's no doubt that I'll be hoping for as many wide shots as possible at the end of the Super Bowl to be looking for Michael's crew moving players and setting up for the trophy presentation this Sunday. I appreciate Michael taking the time to share his story with us. Thanks to you for checking out this episode. Don't forget to visit credentialsonly.com for show notes with more about what we discussed. And while you're there, drop us your email so we can slide into your inbox when we have a new episode to share. And if you like what you heard, please do us a favor and leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. And you can follow us on social media at Credentials Only on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks to Mike Bichet for editing Credentials Only, which is a Holter Media production. Music.